Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Mostly Weather podcast. My name is Claire Whittam and today I'm joined by Jeff Norwood-Brown. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about the relationship between weather, weather forecasting and aviation. And we've invited along a special guest to help us this week and that's Nick Silkson. Hello Nick. Uh, Good morning. Could you tell us just a little bit about what you do in your role here at the Met Office as a start? Yeah, I'm, I currently work on a bench called the Global Guidance Unit. So we look at sort of severe weather around the world for UK government and uh, and military interests. But in the past, um, I've spent most, most of my career in both civil and military aviation uh, across the UK and other places around the world. Fantastic. So I think a wealth of experience is going to come from Nick, but also Jeff today from your past experiences. I think so. (laughs) Um, But we'll start off with, so we're going to talk about weather and how that affects aircraft and flying and various other things. So has anybody had a really bad weather experience on an aircraft or any other type of aircraft? Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, we, we, um, me and my wife came back from uh, New York on a 747. I thought we'd get the best seats right down at the back. And we were in and out the jet stream all the way across the Atlantic. And it was the worst flight I've ever been on. And uh, I fly quite a bit. So in terms of bad, how, how bad was it? What was the impact? Bumpy. Um, yeah, we were swaying from side to side. So if you're at the back of an aircraft, you not only get the up and down movement, but you also get the side to side movement because you're, you know, it's like, it's like a fishtail, if you like. You oh, know. Is that because it pivots around, sort of it like the centre of the wings, the wings, both yeah. up and down? So and there's technical words for that that I can't remember. Yoring, 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 yoring and pitch yeah. and things like that. And uh, yeah, I, I, I managed an orange juice <laughs> and I didn't even hold that down. It was oh. that bad. Um, yeah, so that was my worst ever experience uh, on an aircraft nice <laughs> uh, how about you Nick yeah I've crossed the intertropical convergence zone across West Africa when it was pretty active um, likewise I, I got a flatbed seat uh, flying back from the Falklands and I couldn't keep my legs flat they were been thrown off the seat there was that much vertical oscillation and uh, it was um, yeah severe thunderstorms went through the top of and we even had St Elmo's fire on the wings, which is like a, almost wow. like a blue plasma glow yeah. that you could see out there. So, it was so this is associated incredible. with thunderstorms. So you mentioned the uh, uh, the zone. <laughs> Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, of course. Uh, where there's the maximum heating um, on the Earth, it's evidently the equatorial regions, both because it's well slightly closer to the sun, but the main reason that uh, it's almost square on to the sun, whereas when the sun's hitting the polar regions, you know, they're almost at a you know 90-degree angle from it. And as a result of that heating... Um, Air, well, hot air rises. Um, it draws air in from either side of the equator, and you end up with a, a band or belt of thunderstorms around the well, quite close to the equator. They migrate north and south with the seasons uh, through the year, and that's probably where the most active convection on Earth is routinely. So, flying through that, not very pleasant. That sounds big. No, that 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 occurrence as well. There was something called an, an east, uh, sorry, an African easterly wave was occurring, which is when there's an even more enhanced spell of convection along it. Um, which was, yeah, pretty severe. It lasted about an hour. <laughs> oh, that's truly unpleasant. So I, I don't think I've actually got anything to match that. I mean, I've seen my, my cup of tea go up, the liquid come out of it and fall back down <laughs> in the cup, and at which point they stopped doing the drink service. That Were was... you in Jurassic Park? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was flying over the Rockies, actually. Oh, really? But, okay. um, yeah, the rest of the flight was a bit just sort of grip onto the seat and hope you get there, but uh, nothing to the extent of you guys. So, mm. Nick, you, me- you mentioned you worked on the aviation bench. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Bench, it's... <sighs> It's an old term from back in the day when... Do you actually sit on a bench? Not anymore, no. Back in the days before computers, uh, forecasters basically had upright benches, places for inkwells, pens, rubbers, everything like that, you know, almost like an old school. 
And uh, so, yeah, forecasters worked at a bench that was high, elevated, angled, with a whole host of charts and things pinned upon it. But modern days now, it, it is a desk like any other office with a computer, keyboard and mouse. <laughs> so we should probably start off with really talking about what's important for aviation in terms of weather. We've mentioned a few things. So we've mentioned a bit of turbulence and thunderstorms, but are they the key things? What else impacts flying or, or has it has the potential to cause problems? It's so dependent, like, um, as well as your usual sort of things that would affect the public, you know, snow, fog, thunder, respite species like that. There's so many more sort of specialist things that impact um, flying. So, for example, we, we forecast things such as pressure. Um, you wouldn't think that that's, that's of much importance, but... when no, air... it's not even on my list. Yeah. I've got about a list of 10 different things, and pressure Ooh, didn't... Pressure like, really? Most, okay. is the most important. So. Mm. When aircraft uh, set their altimeters, uh, which t- uh, indicates to them how high they are above the ground, they work in something called flight levels, and that's all adjusted to the, the local sort of Q&H in the area, which is basically the, the pressure... Or, uh, a, a correction for the pressure down to mean sea level and out of every sort of product we're doing op center um in, here in exeter the forecast q and h's for the uk are the number one priority product above everything else so the q and h is the pressure setting for an area that's correct so forecast q and h is i believe we've got 23 i think it's 23 areas across the uk and we will forecast every hour a minimum QH that you could find or a minimum pressure that you could uh, find within that area and every aircraft flying through it will set their altimeters uh, to that that setting, that Q&H. And then that means that they will all, all be flying the same height above sea level. So even if they're not exactly at 34,000 feet, as long as they've all got the same setting, they will all think they're at 34,000 feet. And that allows, you know, separation of aircraft. They're um, relative to, to each other. Relative to each other. To and then, then, of course, there's QFF and QFE. Yeah. <laughs> I knew today's podcast was going to be full of acronyms. Okay, what are, what are they? I've not even so heard the, of the Q codes, it's just uh, an indication that, you know, we're talking about pressure. I think they were developed in World War II. Does the Q uh, stand for anything? No, it no? doesn't stand okay. for anything. It's just to try and hide it from the Nazis. You know that that's what we were talking about. So it comes from World War Two code. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Right. So there's there's three uh, different types of pressure settings. There's Q and H, which is uh, the pressure for a particular area, as Nick explained. Right. And then there's Q F E and Q F F, and I can't quite remember. <laughs> One of them is the pressure at the level of the airfield. So Q Q F E is uh, pressure at the level of the airfield so for example Leeds Bradford airfield 600 feet above sea level as you go up in the atmosphere pressure falls so at Leeds Bradford for example it might have a QFE of say 990 hectopascals but a Q&H of more like 994 so that's the the difference between the two so when you're flying through an area you take the pressure above me sea level Q and H mm-hmm. and when you're landing at a specific airfield you will switch your altimeter to the QFE so you know exactly what height you are above the runway so I'm guessing that's really important because knowing where the surface is when an aircraft is coming into land is is vital, I, I guess. Yeah. So and that it after, stops you hitting mountains. That's mm. that's the main thing. Well, yeah. yeah. So why in this day and age though, when we've got GPS and all these other things, are we still working in a variable like pressure, which obviously clearly changes from area to area, and people are well, having it, to do manual corrections? It's back of redundancy, really. Mm. Um, uh, redundancy is is the key. If your GPS fails. Uh, then you've got multiple instruments that work on pressure, you know, and pressure is readily available. I mean, it's literally a tube that sticks out of the aircraft, uh, out the side of the aircraft, and that measures pressure. That very rarely fails. 
it were as GPS if your battery goes or you know you can't find the satellites or whatever um, that's a little bit more I mean, I mean this day and age it probably isn't um, uh, it's not going to fail that often but you know if you can still require you know rely on pressure um, then that's a very simple thing to measure so sometimes the simple things are the best yeah exactly you know, and, it, and you may as well have as many systems as, as possible you know, just to uh, ensure safety. And building that redundancy, which is exactly, very important, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so pressure, <laughs> clearly a really big deal for actually knowing where you are, what height you're at, not colliding with other aircraft. Yeah, actually, talking about scary flights, I was on a flight recently, looked down and saw an EasyJet flight. I mean, literally go underneath us. It felt like it was metres away and that. No, 1,000 foot separation, mm. I think. Am I right? I, I be- yeah, I believe it might be slightly more than that. Okay. Um, I, th- I believe it might be 2,000 as, as standard. Oh, right. Um, it, it, it may be closer in some places, which is only 700 metres, so, you know. Well, that's it. It's yeah. not actually that far, is it? You yeah. can, it feels very close when you're mm. sat in an aircraft looking out the window. Yeah. And, of course, you know, you're doing probably 400 miles an hour. And the approaching aircraft is also doing 400 miles an hour, so you're approaching each other at 800 miles an hour, so it does look quite zippy. Exactly. So knowing where you are, vitally important in all sorts, well, even in clear weather conditions, so I guess that's the main thing there. So what else is important for everyday flying? Oh, where to start? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, winds, for example... um, you know, m- most aircraft other than helicopters uh, will operate out of airfields that have runways that are just in one orientation, so they may run east to west, north to south. So the wind direction um, is of you know great importance. Uh, a headwind is often helpful. You know, you get off the ground quicker, you land and can stop quicker. Um, versus a crosswind where it makes the approach much more difficult, where you're having to crab an aircraft in and turn to the they say the orientation of the runway right at the final final part of the approach oh so this is where you see these dramatic pictures on the internet and things of aircraft coming in at a Normally huge angle <laughs> yeah. at Leeds Bradford is that quite mm. common and and then they suddenly straighten up at the last minute and, and yeah land. so headwinds versus tailwinds at airports I can never get this right in my head this is kind of fairly basic physics which one is most important uh, what's so when you land at an aircraft, uh, when you land an aircraft at an airport, you want to put as, as little physical strain as possible on the tyres and uh, um, the suspension, everything like that. So you will land at a prescribed airspeed. So you know you're travelling a certain speed relative to the air around you. So if you're coming in, say, to touch down at quite typical 120 knots into a 20 knot headwind, your actual ground speed when you land will only be 100 knots, meaning that there's less action for the braking to do etc whereas if you were flying and landing with that tailwind you'd be effectively landing with a ground speed of 140 knots which would be um you know way way higher putting a lot more wear on the aircraft and other bits and pieces as well so you will always look to land into a headwind where possible so you always want to land into a headwind uh, but as you say if you've only got run- one runway then your choices are limited i'm guessing yeah uh, so one runway evidently you could approach it from the east or or west much of the time um, so you you always try and favour a headwind wherever okay. you go. And of course, takeoff as well is mm-hmm. always into the headwind um, because you're trying to maximise the amount of air over the wings. Um, so if you take off into a headwind, that's going to amplify the speed that you're doing down the runway. Uh, it's also why the aircraft puts out its flaps um, just before takeoff as well to maximise the size of the wings to... Uh, make the most use of the airflow over the wing to give it lift. You know. 
So that's because you want to get more air flying over the top of the wind, is that? And you create yeah. the pressure differential between the top that's of the it. wing and the bottom of the wing, uh, which helps yeah. the aircraft. So you always take off and land into wind. Okay, so wind at airports, also really important, but I'm guessing wind at altitudes is equally vital. Yeah, so I'll start at quite, quite low levels. For example, most aircraft uh, land at airports with what's called a, a sort of a minimum distance separation between them. So particularly at busy airports such as Heathrow, this is you know where they're, they're almost exactly at the minimum distance separation, everyone that comes in. And as the last point, we're talking about you know an average headwind speed. These aircraft will fly an, an airspeed, so relative to the air. And if they've got a headwind, that's evidently means a, a slower, effectively, ground speed. Uh, so at Heathrow, if you've got, for example, uh, you know, you're coming in at 100 knots airspeed into an average 25 knot headwind, you're effectively travelling a fair bit slower of that final 1.5 miles behind the previous aircraft uh, than you would be if it was flat. So at Heathrow, just a, a very modest headwind will reduce the landing rates of aircraft from around sort of 42 per hour, which is quite typical, quite quickly down to sort of 36, 38 per hour and cause huge problems at Heathrow. So just a, a gentle westerly wind uh, can really impact the operation. And, yeah. Crikey, so that's about ish 20 percent reduction in the number of aircraft that can land yeah. just by a minor increase in the wind speed yeah just by what we generally call as a public probably a brisk westerly um yeah it really makes quite a difference that's incredible i had no idea yeah you hear about these things about uh yeah the big aircraft creating bigger vortices mm-hmm. and more turbulence and that having to lead to bigger distances when they land but i hadn't realized the wind even in the UK, could have that big an impact. So there's a thing called vortex weighting, which is the... Um, so a bigger aircraft will cause more vortices. You know, So if you're following, you know, if you're in your Cessna mm-hmm. and you're following in a 747, you've got to stay back quite a way because of the vortices and the, um, the turbulence that the 747 would cause. Mm-hmm. So is that affected by the wind as well? Yeah, so evidently wind and, and atmospheric st- stability combined with that. So if you've got a strong crosswind, the wake vortices behind the, the 747, for example, will be pushed away um, to, to whichever side the wind is, oh, okay. uh, wind is blowing. But in terms of how air traffic work, um, um, they basically maintain those separations, you know, regardless of atmospheric okay. conditions. But we get more reports when the atmosphere is generally calm. Um, still so you know early mornings late at night particularly in winter that's when we seem to get more reports of of wake vortex so calm still weather yes fog yes how does that affect so your little aircrafts that people uh, fly around the country evidently they're flying mostly on visual flight rules so they have to see the ground have a certain cloud-based visibility etc like that to fly on a commercial operation, the aircraft can pretty much land themselves now at big airports. I've got the best approach aids in place. So this is, if I make mm. it kind of crude, it's effectively sort of a laser system. It's probably not laser, but coming out of a, an aircraft that's creating a funnel that the aircraft can pick up on and, and that guides them into the airport through fog or cloud or anything else. Is that right? Correct. It's an instrument landing system, okay. which is based on, on radio and it, it does it. it you look at basically um, a glide path, you lock onto it, and then you can follow that down effectively to the runway. And the, the main issue then with, with fog is actually, once the aircraft lands, um, normally, let's say it's a busy airport like Heathrow, they're almost back to back, tail to tail. But 
to assure the accuracy of this instrument landing system, you don't want a big metal object such as an aircraft still close to the runway or close to this system which is emitting the way, um, emitting this, this radio frequency that the next aircraft locks onto. So the aircraft has to move off the runway and move further away from the runway at a slower pace because of the fog mm-hmm. impinging the visibility than it otherwise uh, would. Meaning that at Heathrow, again, typically they'd go down from about 42 movements per hour which is their standard, to only around 26 in foggy conditions. So using, losing a huge percentage of their hourly movements just due to fog. So fog is a real problem around the world, I think. You know, they have a lot of problems in Australia, San Francisco, in mm. the Bay Area. We've talked about in a previous podcast when we actually talked specifically about fog. Um, and I think on one of the sets of show notes, there's a, an amazing video footage of a plane coming to land, actually possibly in Australia, just through dense clouds. And, uh, but it causes real problems, doesn't it? You know, as you say, it can halve the the number of landings it's more the the movement on the ground mm. that right. is the problem it's it, you know most aircraft these days can probably land on an airfield you know given the uh, instrument landing system and, and uh, other guides as well but it's once they're on the ground and, and trying to move them around the airport uh, when the air traffic controllers can't actually see the aircraft that's the problem you know um i mean the the, the big you know the, the major incident was in uh uh, the uh, Canary Islands, um, I think in the, oh, in the 70s, were um, two 747s. One took off while one was still taxiing down the runway, you know, because the air traffic controllers just couldn't see it, you know. And one of the pilots decided he was going to go for it, and it was uh, devastating, you know. But um, I, yeah, I think it was one of the deadliest aviation incidents yeah. Um, ever wasn't it and yeah just caused by actually fog on the ground so nothing affecting really the aircraft in any way shape or form beyond just people not being able to see what they were going to do yeah and somebody making a poor decision mm-hmm. and, and creating all sorts of havoc really so that's interesting so it's weather's important for the the pilots to understand what they're flying into uh, and what they might encounter at, at heights as well as at the ground. But it's clearly also really important for air traffic control um, and, and ground operations at airports, which people might not think about so much. So how do we actually get the weather information to the pilots? Oh, So we work with a very specific rule book, which is dictated by ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization. Um, for airfield specifics, that's evidently METAS, which are... Basically, mm. observations of the real rivers. There's Which another means... classic acronym there. <laughs> yeah. for... So there's METARs and there's TAFs, mm. isn't there? So METARs are a, a MET aviation report. So that's the actual weather. Yeah. And it's a, a sort of a coded version of um, an observation of the weather at that time. And at a specific aerodrome, is that correct? At, as at well? a yeah. specific place, yeah. Um, so the METAR, uh, I think it, it's preceded by a date and time, and then the observation um, specific to the aerodrome that you're um, reporting from. So this and is a, the equivalent in you know a while back of somebody looking out the window saying, "This is what the weather is doing." writing it down in a very coded form yeah and and absolutely yeah and it's done every hour um at all major airfields and is that around the world globally that's the standard absolutely it is all around the world it used to be largely done by met office people but i think um uh air traffic controllers are increasingly used um to do the METARs, but the tafs Mm -hmm. which is the other um uh, aviation um Forecast. So, what so, does that stand for? So, what does TAF stand for, Nick? That's a <laughs> terminal 
aerodrome forecast. Oh, very good. Wow, there I didn't go. know that. Okay, <laughs> yeah. brilliant. So what does the TAF do? It tells you the forecast? Yeah, it's almost like the opposite of me It's in a very similar coded format. It tells you a forecast when issued, valid between what time, and it gives you a breakdown of wind, speed direction, visibility, any weather associated with that, and then cloud base and amounts at various heights. And in some parts of the world, they can add supplementary information about things such as maximum temperatures and other, other phenomenon that might occur as well. Okay, so the METAR is saying, this is what it's doing now. The TAF is saying, this is your forecast, basically, how the weather's going to change yeah, at, the, again, this the, specific aerodrome site. Or, or other and location. the TAF will tell you how long the forecast is for as right, well. Right. You know, So it gives you an idea of that. Um, there's some interesting <laughs> abbreviations I was going to do a quiz, but I don't think I'll bother because it's so. Uh, it's well, so... Nick will win. I think we can understand that if you do. If I went on mastermind, this would be my specialist subject. <laughs> would it really? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in a in a meter or a TAF, um, you have the indicator GR. What does that stand for? That's Graupel. Graupel. Why is it Graupel? What is Graupel? Um, well. Grapples effectively hailstones, um, sort of cl- generally. He's, won. Cl- He's got a point. Yeah, already. generally, <laughs> generally clear ice-like hailstones. But in TAF code, grapple can also mean what we'd call um, GS, which is sort of smaller hailstones that are above five millimeters in diameter. So effectively, sizable hailstones of any variety are reported as GR, which are going to cause a, a problem to aircraft. Well, I guess, it's interesting not. because you only get hail in uh, convective situations. Um, this is something I'd like to move on to, actually. Um, and convection is um, can be a help or a hindrance to aircraft. So if you've got hail coming out of a cloud, you know you've got some pretty big convection going on because it's going to be tantamount to a thunderstorm mm-hmm. um, or, or something similar, something building. And the difference between a shower and frontal rain for a, uh, for a pilot um, is quite useful to know, mm. really, isn't it? And I'm hoping Nick is going to take over <laughs> and explain why. Otherwise, I'll keep talking. Yeah, no, no is that so? So generally, when you've got a convective cloud, you've got a generally much higher loading of sort of water or supercooled water within it. So a much higher risk of, of icing at, at various temperatures outside the cloud as you fly through it as well. You'll have strong updrafts and downdrafts, which are largely absent from, from frontal zones, which give you wind shear, turbulence, and potentially even more severe things such as microbursts or downbursts when you're, you're on approach. All of which sound like they're bad things if you're in an aircraft. Yeah, unfortunately, they've all... These, all these phenomena have downed aircraft over okay. the years. So um, this is serious weather phenomena now that you're yes. talking about. Yeah. Well, a microburst is um, when you get a sudden um, downdraft out of a thunderstorm. So if you're in an aircraft and you're trying, say, you're trying to climb, um, you go into a, a downdraft, and basically what's happening is all the water, all the hail, all the moisture is coming out in one go, but it's dragging all the air down with it. So no matter how much you try and climb in an aircraft, the whole air mass is coming down. You're basically you're, being pushed down. It's you're, like something's you're being forcing pushed you down. Downwards, right? you, you, you can't climb out of it. And it has, it downed an aircraft. Um, there's famous footage, actually, you can look on YouTube, <laughs> of a, uh, you know an aircraft trying to land, and then it got hit by a downdraft. And I, I read about that, yeah, yes. Yeah. It was on its approach, and it wasn't very far away from the runway. It got hit by a downdraft, and basically 
bashed and, into some kind of building and, and that yeah, was that, and wasn't that was it? it? Again, yeah. another fatal accident. And this is why we differentiate between rain and showers a lot in the forecasts because, you know, showers are produced by convection and this is very, very interesting if you're a pilot. Okay, that's interesting. So in the last podcast, episode 25, we talked a little bit about sh- the difference between showers and frontal rain and what you might call rain, um, but just from more describing what rain is perspective. But actually for a pilot, it sounds like that distinction is really vital for understanding, I guess, the hazards that's going to be in, in the air as you're flying around and, and that evolving weather situation. Um, so showers potentially more risky then because they might be associated with convection whereas frontal rain it's it's just raining and you you need to know that absolutely yeah but i mean if you're a glider pilot um you know convection is you're looking for thermals that's that's what you're looking for you're looking for the uh the cloud that has the darkest underside uh because that's where the convection is the the strongest Oh really? So, so that, glider pilots will actually go. Oh yeah, they will seek for... out. I mean, <laughs> you're never going to go under a thunderstorm. No. Okay. <clears> so there's a degree of sense required. Yeah. Um, but um, but certainly you're looking for cumulus type clouds, which are um, where the thermals are, and you need your thermals. So this is rising air currents, and that's what a glider pilot will do. It will see, uh, he will see or she will seek out um, wherever the um, atmosphere is rising. And this is normally indicated by a nice cumulus cloud uh, with a very grey bottom. Um, that's what you're looking for. So we talked about how we get information to pilots and the idea of the metars and the, the TAFs and things. Are, are your glider pilots taking on exactly the same information as commercial 747, you know, A380 pilots? Not necessarily, Um a glider pilot will tend to just read the sky, whereas uh, 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 an airline pilot, uh, you know, commercial airline pilot, will take on metars and TAFs um, to plan their route. Uh, a glider pilot t- tends to just go by the seat of the pants, if you like, um, um, and will just, as I say, look for cumulus clouds, um, especially the dark ones, because that's where the most lift is. Um, with a commercial airline pilot, you're looking to reduce the cost, so you're looking for the easiest ride to and from wherever you go. So the classic example is going over the Atlantic, um, and they will uh, work out where, well, <laughs> they can say they work out, we give them the information of where the jet stream is. So the jet stream generally goes from west to east uh, over the Atlantic, and if you're flying to America from the UK, then you want to avoid that because it gives you a really strong headwind. Coming back, you want to be in the jet stream because it gives you a tailwind, and uh, um, and that will re- you know. So this is why when you fly out to America, it's normally about two hours longer than it is to fly back from America. You know, um, it's just because most of the airlines will. Uh, jump in the jet stream and if you look at something like there's a a, a great um, website called flight radar 24 and if you go on that you can you can see where the jet stream is just by looking at where all the aircraft are coming back from america so jeff you you mentioned there that pilots are provided with the information on where the jet stream are and other phenomena so we've we've talked only about sort of the metals and the tafts which don't seem to be appropriate so so nick when you're sat on the aviation bench what, what are you actually doing to pull together some of that information that can go to Jeff's transatlantic mm-hmm. pilot so they know I need to be here to be in the jet stream 
they, a lot of the information, so there's, for example, upper level winds, which indicates where the gesture is, is actually really well produced by models. Um, so there has to be, there's generally very little human input. A lot of this will feed straight off from the mess of supercomputers through to our customers into their software to allow them to, to plan routes. The, the thing that takes the human intervention is working out where there's, there's turbulence in association with the jet stream because definitely a strong jet of winds means that you're going to have wind shear where the wind speed drops off either side of that and that's probably where the heat well that is where the human intervention comes in and is most valuable so if we think of the jet stream as almost like a tunnel of really fast moving air Mm -hmm. it's at the edges of that tunnel and jeff as you said when you drop in and out of that you get huge amounts of shear and then turbulence and that's the bit where the forecaster and the humans adding that value absolutely yeah, you can do that from, you can often see severe turbulence manifesting itself in like waves in what we call Suez cloud and satellite imagery. You see this classic sort of scallop in shape right on the edge of the jet stream. It's indicative of, you know, quite strong wave activity there. And uh, we've also got a whole host of diagnostics that look at, at wind shear, calculate various terms. And we use that with some empirical rules to identify areas of moderate and severe turbulence. And we give it both an area sort of east, west, north, south, but also vertically. So pilots can at times climb and descend to avoid the most severe turbulence. Ah, so when you're sat in a plane and the modern ones can give you that kind of in-flight information, that might be why sometimes you're changing in altitude. It's to avoid areas of turbulence or to pick up faster jet winds or other winds. Yeah, but, yeah, possibly so. And uh, I know for, for the Atlantic, um, the, the tracks that people take across are, are relatively well prescribed by, by Nats and the, the American authorities the day before, so... You know, there's, there's, when you see it, it's not like wacky races. You know, there's eight people picking their own, pa- own paths depending where they get their, their information from. It tends to be a line, and it's called a Nats track, and they're, they're published the previous day. So all aircraft going east and west know where the, the various Nat tracks that they can take are, are located. And then Nats like is a, National Air Traffic Services. National Air Traffic Services, yeah. No doubt these tracks have got a different name in America. <laughs> Probably, <laughs> so, yeah. So Nats is a UK-based <laughs> organisation, yeah. Yeah. And, and is that are those tracks uh, produced based on information that's coming from from us here in the Met Office, or based on the forecast that's coming out of our forecast models? That's correct. Yeah, they're, they're produced on optimum tracks that go both west and east across the Atlantic, and uh, they're published uh, by Nats at the end of every day for the following day. So, so why can't we mention sleet with the Americans? That's a left field question, Jeff. There's obviously a loaded <laughs> no, meaning in there. It's just, it's just something I always remember. So, uh, in the UK, we uh, sleet to us is um, uh, rain and snow combined. Yes, that would be sleet in America is uh, freezing rain. Oh, which is very different. Which is very different, and so um, when in any of the uh, aviation forecasts that we produce, we have to be very careful around those terms. Um, because we we uh, bow to the Americans and say, okay, sleet is freezing rain. Um, when we're talking about it in the UK, we still refer to you know sleet as you know a mixture of rain and snow. But with the Americans, it's freezing rain. So that's one of the things. That's the I think that's the only thing that we disagree on really you know so that's really fascinating because i thought things like this would be really well constrained you know we talked about this coding up of everything else (laughs) apart from apart from that one thing (laughs) it would be the word that's the difference but the code in tap in tap is rain snow mix which is r a s n okay so So that's rain snow mix so that's standardized worldwide so there's no disagreement if we're there if we're reading each other's tafs it would just be the word that we'd use to describe that code okay and you know, we've mentioned the UK and the Americans, and it's not just because 
maybe we're thinking about transatlantic flights. There's a, there's a bigger picture here, isn't there, mm-hmm. between the UK and the US in terms of we're both um, WAVC forecast centres, which is World Area Forecast Centres. And Nick, am I right in saying that basically if you fly anywhere in the world, um, the pilot hopefully <laughs> should have got their information either from the UK or from uh, the American WAVC centre? Correct. We do have, do half the world each. Okay. Um, yeah, the full full hemisphere, um, sorry, not in terms of north-south, but west and east. So the work that we do here goes all the way down to Antarctica, up to the North Pole. We cover across the, across the Atlantic to the States and across much of Asia. And yeah, in, in that area, we're identifying areas of um, clear air turbulence, um, just as mentioned in association with jet streams, and also areas of um, convection thunderstorms, uh, which we call cumulonimbus and thunderstorm activity. And yeah, we cover the whole world, so anybody, uh, that half of the world, so anybody flying through there should have our charts loaded onto their, their flight planning software. That's amazing, really, that you know something that we're producing here can be being used you know, in Asia and Australia to guide pilots so they have the best information available to them. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's about passenger, crew, aircraft safety, isn't it? Any flight decision. And, and I hadn't realised before I started sort of doing research for this just how much detail the pilots in the aviation industry are using and needing. It's almost, I can't think of actually another career apart from being a meteorologist mm. in, a, in a weather centre where you might need that level of detail, detailed knowledge. Mm. It's incredible. I think we're, we've even been working in recent years with like... Um, uh, the European sort of air traffic system, I forget their name now, I think it's like EASA, European Aviation Safety Authority. And we're feeding in even even higher resolution winds into to various bits and pieces to improve, improve our air traffic um, manage aircraft onto approaches. So we're not looking at winds every, say, 50 kilometres. It goes into generally the global packages. We're looking much smaller areas, spacing between them. And yeah, it's, it's because time in the air is money, and in the avi- aviation industry, anything we can do weather-wise to, you know, to maximise that efficiency, you know, be it get get on an approach path slightly quicker or get a quicker routing across it, across the world. Um, yeah, we add to it. So there's a demand for more and more of the best information to allow aircraft to be more efficient and save the, the airline companies money in the long run. So the more detail we can provide, the better decisions they can make. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's driven by economics, but also driven by safety as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So Doug isn't here with us to join us on the podcast today, but I thought we couldn't perhaps leave it without a little bit of a, what does climate change mean for aviation as, as well in terms of, uh, you know, in, increased turbulence seems to be something that people are concerned about with a warming climate um, leading to more moisture, more heat in the atmosphere. Is, is that something that's on the, the radar so to speak, of the aviation industry. Yes, it's it's very it's very difficult to quantify. For example, one of the one of the quandaries put put into place for climate change is that the the less temperature contrast between the equator, for example, and the the, the Arctic due to the the warming Arctic is actually leading to sort of weaker uh, jet stream activity, uh, sort of more prone to what we call meandering rather than just flowing a straight straight west to east path and. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult to quantify exactly what it means in terms of, of jet stream strength, um, I feel. But certainly severe convection um, with more, more low-level moisture, more temperature, I think the severity of that, certainly in terms of precipitation totals that we're recording, seems to be getting greater and greater You know, as the decades goes on. So I, I think certainly from the risk from severe convection is increasing to aircraft very, very slightly over a very long time frame. But uh, difficult to quantify on the jet stream. I don't know if you've got... 
Yeah, I'm I'm just thinking, um, yeah, the more energy you put into a system, you know, the the more um, violent, you know, things like hurricanes and Mm. as as an extent the the turbulence associated with individual storms, it's going to be greater. Um, So, yeah, we shall wait and see. I think the other aspect is that uh, increasing temperatures more generally could have a problem as well. So in places like Dubai already, during the hottest times of the day, I believe that flights have to carry slightly less weight. So they might have reduced numbers of passengers, reduced luggage. Um, Other airports which are not used to such extreme temperatures maybe already have issues with melting tarmac. So I think that might be a problem as well. This is it. I mean, uh, you know, an aircraft needs uh, a certain amount of air molecules to flow over the wings um, and the hotter the temperature is, the less air molecules there are around. So um, if the temperatures are high, you have to adjust your takeoff weight and your takeoff speed accordingly um, because yeah, there's simply less air around um, to, to actually take off. So that's going to become a factor, you know. So if you look at if you look around the world at the places that have got the longest runways, effectively they're they're both hot, as Jeff says, but also quite high. So parts of South Africa, right. Johannesburg, because of as you go up in height, the pressure decreases, so even fewer air molecules. So if you look around China, they've got multiple runways over four or five kilometres. In length, really? Yeah, in, in, in length, <laughs> where where our longest in the UK are around three kilometres in length, which are, are at Heathrow. And that's the same across parts of like high parts of South Africa, such as Johannesburg as well. And yeah, but away from America, where the space shuttle used to land, yes, uh, sure. they're generally the uh, the longest runways by far. Well, so what a cost to build them, you know, like to add on another two kilometres more than you'd need just for. <laughs> and the heat. space required as well. Uh, yeah, incredible. You can't see that being even feasible in, in Western Europe, where I, I guess mm. the problem is is a lot less. So we perhaps don't need to think about it. But. Well, there's a couple of villages that are going to tarmac over for Heathrow, isn't there? So uh, yeah, it's. Uh, yeah possibly a consideration so does anyone have an interesting uh fact that they want to finish up with anything else you want to throw into the discussion no but i think what i will do on the show notes this time is i'm going to put a meter and a taff uh for people to have a look at and see if they can work it out there's a really good website uh which i might even put the link to so you can decode uh the meter and taff but uh, once you get used to reading them they're uh, they're fairly useful Mm. yeah i'd agree with jeff like uh although i've got access to a whole host of weather information if i want to have a quick look at the weather i will always search for the the taf um, of the local airport to actually see what's what's going on in an area because i prefer that to model an automated output um so it, it doesn't take much to get into the decoding of it. i think quite quickly you can give yourself a little edge it looks daunting when you first see it doesn't yeah. it but oh, once you, oh, i've once looked you get... at it already it just looks like an impenetrable no, list of letters and numbers it, fine. <laughs> okay so um I, I have one quiz question to finish up with. So what was the earliest flight that was affected by weather? Well, <laughs> it's going to be in the 20th century. <laughs> I'll narrow it that, down yeah, to that. That's, that's good, yes. <laughs> oh, um, it wasn't the uh, channel crossing, was it, by... It wasn't. I'll be honest, this is a little bit of a trick question. So um, the first manned flight was on the 17th of December 1903 by the Wright brothers um, at a place called Kitty Hawk in the States. And on that day, it achieved four really short flights, the longest Mm. one being 59 seconds when it flew 852 feet. Um, But as they were 
collecting their thoughts and chatting to observers about that flight, uh, there was a severe gust of wind which overturned the aircraft, <laughs> sent it across the sand, and that was it for their flying. And the, and that aircraft never flew again as yeah. a result of the wind. So There was no TAF, was there? There was no TAF. That was the problem. It mm. sounded like actually the weather that day wasn't brilliant anyway. So it's, it's very <laughs> impressive that they achieved what they did. Um, so a fitting way to end it. So weather still affects aviation, has done ever since first flights, will do into the future. But I think there's huge amounts of great information coming out of the Met Office, other centres in terms of the observations, but also in terms of the forecast. And as you've been saying, Nick, the, the improvements that are still being made in that into the future. Yeah, I think particularly across parts of Europe and you know North America, the airspace is becoming ever and ever more congested. So, you know, negotiating your way around from the storms, bad weather, is becoming ever, ever more challenging. So I think it all... And certainly on the efficiency side, although it always plays a key role in safety, that will that will increase as the year goes on, the years go on. And and I think you know the aviation industry they want to keep flying, don't they? So it's in their best interest to use the best available information. Yeah, and keep their costs down. Exactly. Right. Well, that's been fascinating. I've learned a lot. It's a huge subject area, but I think we've covered a massive range of things. So I hope everybody has found that interesting. We will put some notes and some metals and some tafs up on the show notes, uh, which you'll be able to find on the Met Office website. So that's metoffice.gov.uk forward slash mostly hyphen weather slash episode 26. If you have any questions, uh, you can always tweet us. So our Twitter handle is MW for Mostly Weather, MW underscore podcast. And you can also email us. So that's mostlyweather at metoffice.gov.uk. If you'd like to leave us a review or a comment anywhere where you found this podcast, we would love to hear your feedback and any questions or ideas for future episodes. So thank you very much to Nick for coming along. Being really interesting. Thanks, Nick. And to Jeff for joining us today. And thank you all for listening. Goodbye.